We're starting our sermon series in the book of Ephesians, um, which is a letter, epistle. When you use that word epistle, means letter. It's an epistle that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Ephesus. The book of Acts actually tells us that Paul spent a considerable amount of time in this, uh, at this church in Ephesus, three years altogether um, in, in this uh, city. And that's because it was actually a very important city. It had the greatest harbor in Asia Minor and four of the great trade roads in Asia that went through Ephesus. Ephesus was often called the gateway to Asia, Asia Minor. Paul knew, in other words, if the gospel took hold in Ephesus, it very easily could be spread to all of Asia. Next to Rome and Athens, actually, Ephesus was considered the greatest city in the Roman Empire. A city that had a center of pagan worship. There was a massive temple in Ephesus, a temple to Diana, which is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A very important city in the time of Paul. Actually, if you would, if you could turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 16. That's where we're going to start this morning. Acts chapter 20, verse 16. We're going to be jumping around a lot, mostly in the book of um, Ephesians. But I want to start in Acts. Just some context for this, this portion of Scripture. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. This is the, towards the end of his third missionary trip. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, and Acts 20.16 says this, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This part of Acts, again, Paul is trying to get to Jerusalem, and that's because he is collecting an offering for the church at Jerusalem. There was heavy persecution for this church by the Jews, and Paul wanted to get there with his offering before Pentecost. Look at verse 16 again. He says, He sailed past Ephesus, for he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. But Paul loved this church. He loved the church, and he loved the people in the church, and he couldn't just pass by. So look at verse 17. From Meltus, he sent to Ephesus and, and called to him the elders of the church. So in other words, on his way to Jerusalem, instead of stopping by into this port and going into the city, he asked for the elders to meet him so he can get to Jerusalem quickly. And these elders were most likely men that he personally discipled and evangelized. Look at verse 18. And when they, these elders, had um, come to him, he, that's Paul, said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. In other words, Paul is saying, you you remember, we lived life together. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly And from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of the repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul came to Ephesus, this city, this great city, and he preached the gospel over and over and over again. Faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance. And look at verse 22. 
And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bounds and afflictions await me. Can you just imagine Paul's calling? I mean, in this moment, God tells Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And that's one of the reasons he's so steadfast on getting to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, God said, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And by the way, Paul, you will be persecuted there. It's actually a prophet that came to him and and prophesied persecution. Bounds and afflictions await me. Look at verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's calling from God was to take the gospel to the nations. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Paul knows he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. He knows persecution is coming, and he thinks even death is a possibility. He thinks he'll never see or talk to this church again. Now skip down to verse 36, because I just want you to see the love that Paul had for these elders and vice versa. Verse 36 says this, When he, that's Paul, had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kiss him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they were accompanying him to the ship. This church at Ephesus absolutely loved Paul, and Paul absolutely loved this church. They both never thought they would hear or see from each other again. Look at verse 38 again. He says, grieving. They were grieving together. These elders were grieving over Paul, especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. But God had a different plan. Paul went to Jerusalem. He was arrested and persecuted just as prophesied, but he wasn't killed. Instead, he was sent to to Rome as a prisoner. And in Rome, he spent two years in prison under house arrest. And during these two years, he wrote four letters, four epistles that are commonly known as the prison epistles. He wrote them in prison. He wrote Colossians, Philippians, Philemons, and probably the greatest one of them all, Ephesians. Paul wrote a masterful letter to this church that he absolutely loved. This epistle, the book of Ephesians, the epistle of Ephesians, this this epistle has often been called, and I think rightfully so, the crown and climax of Pauline theology. I, I know I say this a lot, that this is like my favorite passage, or this is my favorite psalm, or... And then I, next week I say, this is my favorite song, but I, I truly <laughs> can say, and I've been consistent on this, that the book of Ephesians is my favorite book in all of Scripture. It's 
what we're going to be studying for this foreseeable future. Today, I just wanted to give an introduction. And I want to look at four different things, four different points that we're going to go over. The greeting, the outline, the theology of Ephesians, the purpose of Ephesians. So that's the greeting, the outline, the theology, and the purpose. So are the four points of the sermon this morning. Again, this is just an introduction to this book. And the first point is a greeting. Let's look over the greeting to the, um, the Ephesians. If you would, turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is what Paul writes, inspired by God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually a pretty typical intro to a Pauline epistle, a Pauline letter, letter that Paul wrote. There's three items that are pretty typical, and that's the name of the sender, the recipient, and the greeting itself. So let's just look at those real quick. The name of the sender, of course, Ephesians 1.1 is Paul. Paul. He's the one that wrote this epistle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul, an apostle. An apostle of Christ Jesus. Which, that, ter- that phrase, an apostle of Christ Jesus, refers specifically to the twelve that were with Jesus, that walked with Jesus, that, that were there through the death and resurrection. And Paul's not one of those twelve. He was saved after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Paul makes it clear throughout all of his writings that he is also an apostle of Christ Jesus. Particularly, he is an apostle to the Gentiles. Romans eleven thirteen says this, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Jesus, in other words, used, apostle, or used Paul as an apostle, right, as an instrument, to reach the Gentiles, to reach the nations. Exactly what happened in Ephesus. Paul planted a church there, a church that was mostly Gentiles, non-Jews, although there was a mixture of some Jews. This was mostly a, a pagan area, and the believers that left paganism became the church of Ephesus. And Paul was an apostle, it says, by the will of God. In other words, Paul did not receive his apostleship by effort. He didn't receive this, this office and title by personal drive or personal ambition. It was purely by the will and grace of God. Paul wasn't seeking Christ at all. In fact, Paul was on his way to persecute Christians. His goal in life was to stop the gospel from reaching the nations. And Jesus literally knocked him off his horse on his way to do that and told him, you will be my instrument. So that's the author. I want to look at the re- recipient real quick. Verse 1, the second part, it says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints, that, that just means all those that are saved. The Greek word is hagios, which means holy ones. It refers to all Christians, holy ones. We're holy not because we're sinless. We're holy not because of anything we have done within ourselves, but because Christ has justified us and has set us apart for ministry. He has declared us righteous. 
Therefore, this letter is to the saints, it's to Christians, it's, it's for Christians. I just want to think about that for a second. Because that's true for most books of the Bible. Most of the New Testament letters, especially, and epistles, are written for Christians, not non-Christians, to a church. In other words, if I'm, if I'm going to preach Scripture, which is my calling, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the Word, if I'm going to preach Scripture, I'm going to preach mostly to Christians, not non-Christians. Now, it doesn't mean that I am aware that there's non-Christians probably every Sunday that I'm here preaching, and therefore I give the gospel. And if you don't know where you stand with the Lord this morning, put your faith in Christ as your only hope. But my calling is to preach to Christians. And honestly, Ephesians makes this very clear. Ephesians 4.11 says this, and, I, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for works and ministries. The building up of the body of Christ. In other words, my calling is to build up the body to equip the saints so that the body goes out and shares the gospel with the, with the community. That's really important because Ephesians was written to and for Christians. It's a letter that helps us as Christians understand what really happened to us when we were saved. It's a letter that reveals the depth of God's grace and love for us. And we're going to find out that it's deep. God's grace is is so much deeper, so much glorious, so much more gracious than we ever could have imagined. In fact, Paul even says in Ephesians 3.19, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. We can't understand it. I mean, he's going to try. (laughs) Inspired by God. But there's just a point where we're going to have to hold things in tension and go, I don't know. Surpasses knowledge. Look at verse 1 again. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, many early manuscripts, which are the most reliable manuscripts, don't include the word Ephesus. It's almost like they, they say, to the saints who are in dot, 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 fill in the blank. And that leads most, or not most, but a lot of theologians and historians to think that this letter was actually not meant specifically for the church in Ephesus, but was meant to be passed around to all different types of churches. I don't believe that's exactly right. I believe this letter was originally meant for the church in Ephesus with the understanding that it should be passed around to all the churches in Asia Minor after Ephesus has read it. In other words, they should copy it and pass it around and send it out to other uh, churches. And so my guess is when they copied the original manuscript that said Ephesus, they just put dot, 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 or underline or whatever, left it blank, and said, you fill in the blank now because this is for your church. Which is amazing because this letter was not just, just written for Christians, the saints, but it was also written for the local church. Meaning we could fill in, our, fill in the blank there and say, to the saints who are in Tehachapi, in Country Oaks. This letter was written for us. It's a letter from God, Paul inspired by God, to us as a church. So that's the author, that's the recipient. I want to look at the greeting itself, verse 2. This is the greeting. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is actually, again, a very common Pauline greeting. Grace was a common greeting for the, for the Greeks. Uh, peace is a common greeting. It still is a common greeting for Jews. Shalom. Paul combines these two greetings because the church was full of, of Jews and Greeks. Look at verse 1 again. Let me just read the whole thing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greeting. Second item I want to look at this morning is the outline, and that's because it's super important. The outline of Ephesus or Ephesians is super important. It's super important understanding the book of Ephesians as a whole. The body of Ephesians is really divided up into two sections. The first section is the doctrinal and theological section. Deep theology, chapters 1 through 3. It's a section that talks about what has happened to you, what is, what is happening to you, and what will happen to you, and what God has done through his grace. And the second part of Ephesians is chapters 4 through 6, which is the ethical or practical section. Now, this is how you should live. In other words, chapters 1 through 3 is what has happened. Chapters 4 through 6 is how you should live. In fact, if you would, just look at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul does this a lot, but I think just it's so much more heightened in Ephesians. It's almost perfectly divided in half. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I, therefore, whenever you see that word, therefore, you should look at it, I'm not, I can't not say the joke. Why it's therefore. I said it. All right, let's move on. Um, it points back to something. Well, what's it pointing back to? It's pointing back to all the theology and doctrines in chapter 1 to 3. It's pointing back to the grace that has been poured out to on us, the knowledge of this grace that Paul has been talking about for three chapters. And then he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Because of all this theology and doctrine, what, what God has done for you, I therefore call you to live this way. The deep theology is meant to be foundational to how we live. And the grammar really supports this. In Greek, it's real easy to see um, the difference between an imperative verb and an inductive verb. An imperative is a command. Inductive is just a, a, a verb that is stating a fact. There's 40, 40, not four, 40 imperatives. That means 40 commands in the book of Ephesians. 39 of them are found in chapters 4 through 6. That means in chapters 1 through 3, besides one time, all the verbs are indicatives, meaning statements of fate or statements of fact, telling us information, not commanding us to do something. Chapters one through three gives us the theology, in other words, of, of who we are by God's grace. Chapters four through six gives us the, the commands on how we should then live because of this theology. And it's important. This outline is important because chapter or. Uh, the first half of Ephesians and the second half of Ephesians are connected. They're connected. Remember, this letter, this epistle, was meant to be read in one sitting. Meant to be read in front of the church. And it takes about 20 minutes to read the epistle. And I actually encourage you, if, if you would just 
read it in the morning sometimes as we go through and continue to just read it here and there. 20 minutes of devotion in the morning, you can get up and read the whole thing at once and get the full picture of what Paul is saying. It's meant to be read in one sitting. Therefore, the theology in chapters 1 through 3 is meant to be connected to the practical commands in chapters 4 through 6. That means there is actually a danger in moving through this epistle slowly. That's why I'm spending so much time on this. There's a danger in moving through Ephesians slowly, and we are going to be moving through Ephesians slowly. And I encourage you, we're going to start really slow. (laughs) And then we're going to speed up. So don't get discouraged as we go through one verse at a time or something like that for the next couple weeks. But there's a danger in doing that because there's two mistakes that can happen. Either you can end up with deep theology without practical ways of living it out, or you can have practical commands without the proper theological motivations. Deep theology without practical ways of living it out, if you just go through chapters 1 through 3, or practical commands without the proper theological motivations. You know what's funny about this? I know a lot of people that say, I love Ephesians. I love it. But they only love either chapters 1 through 3, or other people love chapters 4 through 6. And it's people that lean to one of those two things. They just like practical commands in Scripture or people that just love deep theology. (laughs) But both of them are wrong. They're meant to go together. If you have deep theology and you're not living it out, you're not doing what God has commanded you to do. And that's the point of Ephesians. It's this perfect balance. That's why the theme of this book that I think, I, I, I made up this theme, but the depth of God's grace lived out in love. The depth of God's grace, that's chapters 1 through 3. Paul is going to tell us about the depth of God's grace, and it's deep, and we should live it out in love. That's chapters 4 through 6. Ephesians is this perfect balance of who we are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, and how we should live, chapters 4 through 6. So that's the outline. I somewhat briefly want to go through the theology of Ephesians. The theology of Ephesians, it's deep. (laughs) I mean, Grand Canyon deep. Paul, inspired by God, wants to take the church deep. You just can't get around it. You just read Ephesians 1 through 3. It's deep. There's five theological issues I just want to highlight this morning. And there's more than five, and we're going to dive into a lot of these much deeper but, but there's some interesting theological issues that Paul, Paul brings up in the book of Ephesians. The first one is the fatherhood of God. Fatherhood of God. There is more references to God as father in Ephesians than any other Pauline epistle. More than double. That includes Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, which are much larger books. Ephesians is not that large of a book. There's this high emphasis on God as Father. There's also this high emphasis on on Christ. There's this high Christology in Ephesians. Christ is named 46 times. Jesus' name is used 20 times. Lord, referring to Jesus, is used 23 times. Son of God is used once. In addition to that, in Christ is used nine times, in him is used five times, in whom, referring to Christ, is used seven times, and in the beloved once. So this high Christology in Ephesians. 
There's also this high exaltation of the Trinity. There's many theologians that refer to Ephesians as the Trinitarian letter. We see the activity of the Trinity no less than eight different places in the short book. Let me just give you some examples. This first one, I think, is the greatest example. And Look at chapter 1 real quick. Verses 3 through 14. Verses 3 through 14 is this amazing doxology. Like, Paul starts, he says, you know, Hi, Ephesians, it's Paul, I'm writing you. And then he jumps into this crazy praise of God for the depth of the grace that he's poured out on us. He just dives right into this praise of God's grace. And, it's, and what's crazy about it is, is verses 3 through 14 in Greek is one sentence. It's one sentence. I'm sorry if you're an English teacher. It's a rung on sentence. Uh, they, they couldn't do it in English, so your English translations has periods. It's 202 words long. This one sentence of just praising God for his grace. And that means it can be somewhat difficult to outline because it's one sentence. I think the best way of outlining it is looking at this repeated phrase that we see three times. In verse 6, if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his, his glorious grace. Now look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The outline is these three repeated statements. These, these repeated statements, I believe, close three sections of this one sentence. So that means verses 3 through 6 is one section, and it ends to the praise of his glorious grace. Verses 7 through 12 is one section. It's the second section, and it ends to the praise of his glory. And then verses 13 through 14 is another one. It's the last section, to the praise of his glory. What's this have to do with the Trinity? Well, let's look at verse 3, and I'm just going to read verse 3 through 6. It starts this way, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who... Just real quick, who's the, what's the antecedent to who there? Who's who referring to? God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, this is the Father, chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5, he, that's the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ or Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, God the Father from eternity past has chose us, verse 4, and predestined us, verse 5, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now look at verse 7. This is the second section here. In him... We have redemption through his blood. Who's that? Jesus, his blood, the Son of God. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Let's get down to verse 12. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of 
of his glory. In other words, Jesus Christ in this age redeemed us and forgave us through his blood. Now look at verse 13. This is the last section. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who, that's the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, through the Holy Spirit, we are sealed to a future inheritance. An amazing sentence, right? You have past, eternity past. You have present, this present age. You have future, eternity future. You have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Verses 3 through 6, eternity past. God the Father chose us and predestined us. Verses 7 through 12, the present age. Jesus has redeemed us and brought forgiveness. And then verses 13 to 14, the promised future. The Holy Spirit has sealed us for a future inheritance. Verses 3 through 14 is the complete Work of redemption through the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amazing. And that's not the only place. That just sets the stage for the work of the Trinity. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, right, there it is, the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, there's Jesus, Father, and Spirit. Look at Ephesians 2.18. For through him, that's Jesus, if you look at the context of this passage, for through him, Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus, Spirit, Father. Ephesians 2.22. In him, this is Jesus Christ again, the context. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You have Jesus, God, Spirit. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. There's the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. That's the Father's glory. To be strengthened by, with power through his Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's Father, Spirit, Christ. Ephesians 4.4. 4. It's probably the clearest passage on the Trinity. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One Spirit, one Lord, one God. Lastly, look at Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks in all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. You have Spirit, the Lord Jesus, God, the Father. Therefore, one commentator said this, The work of the Trinity is important in the letter to the Ephesians. It is the Father to whom believers direct their prayers and the one who is over all things and plans all things. 
It is the Son through whom believers pray and the one who carries out the Father's plan in redemption and reconciliation of believers into the Holy Spirit is the one who seals and dwells and empowers believers. High exaltation of the Trinity. And Paul also spends a lot of time on the doctrines of grace. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. Again, this is the greeting, and he greets the church of Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn to the very end of the epistle. Chapter 6, verse 23. Chapter 6, verse 23. Peace be to you, brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Verse 2 in chapter 1 says, Grace to you and peace. It's by God's grace, in other words, that we have peace with God. It's by God's grace that we have peace with God. And we are going to dive deeply into what it means that God has graced us and given us grace and has poured out his grace on us. The first two chapters of Ephesians is the clearest picture of how much grace there truly is in salvation. But let me start by saying this. Grace leads to peace with God. Peace with God leads to peace and love with one another. That's why the theme, the depth of God's grace, lived out in love. The grace of God is foundational to our love for each other. Look at Ephesians 2.14. This is what it says. Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He's talking about Greek and Jews here. He's made, made them one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, through God's grace and the peace we have with God, we have peace with each other. That means age, wealth, education, backgrounds, upbringings, race. None of these things should separate us. The church should be diverse in all those things because we share the grace of God. And we all have peace with God by God's grace. And that leads to the last theological issue that is extremely important. It's not last in importance, it's last in order, and that's just the church. The church. There's this high emphasis throughout the book of Ephesians on unity, love, peace within the church. It brings me to my final point. The purpose of Ephesians. In somewhat a debated subject, Paul covers just so much, and there's not like a particular issue he's writing to the church. It seems like, I think there is, but it doesn't seem like he's addressing like a, an issue per se. And the deep, there's so much deep theology, and it just covers so much that, that people, a lot of people just say, Paul just wrote a letter that covered everything he wanted to cover. <laughs> 
Like, it's just Pauline theology. It's like, this is, this is a letter to all the churches. I'm writing it. This is what I want to cover. I had one letter. This is what it would be. People say that even more so than Romans. A lot of people believe that. But here's my best guess, and, and it's not just my guess. I, uh, there's many theologians that agree with me on this and commentators that I've read. I think there is an overarching purpose of Ephesians, and I think that overarching purpose is unity and love. Unity and love. There's a number of reasons why unity. Actually, I got myself in trouble first service. I read in the commentator, commentary that um, the word unity is only used in Ephesians in the New Testament. And I couldn't think of another place in Scripture when I read that. It was kind of the last thing I read, and I'm like, is there another place in the New Testament where it's, it's used in the Old Testament? I know that because of the sign in there. Um, You'll know what I'm saying when you go in there. Um, but in the New Testament, I couldn't think of something. So I said, hey, I challenged the church. Someone, uh, if, you, if you know another place where that word unity is used. And here's what I did. I grabbed the, the Greek word for unity, and I searched it, and it popped up only in Ephesians. And so as I was talking, I get like three text messages for service <laughs> of like three different places the word unity is used. It's a different Greek word for unity, and so... Um, I'll have to look up why that word specifically is used in Ephesians. But um, anyways, unity is a main, that's beside the point, is a main theme, and there's plenty of reasons why it's a main theme, as we see, we'll see as we go through the book of Ephesians. But, but the question I wanted to ask this morning is, how is unity achieved? This is what Harold Honer says in his commentary on Ephesians. Forced unity is unacceptable because it is not genuine. In other words, if Paul came in and said, be unified, it wouldn't be genuine unity. Thus, unity must originate from within. True unity is accomplished when people love one another. Therefore, I believe truly that the theme and the purpose of Ephesians is love. It's love. The word love... Both noun and verb is found 20 times in this short epistle. Which is funny to me because before I started studying Ephesians, love wouldn't have been the first thing I thought of. Out of all of Paul's writing, which is, which is half of the New Testament, a third of the time Paul uses the word love as a verb, right, as a command, you should love someone, or using it as, as a verb, it's found in Ephesians, a short book. Honer says, the frequent occurrence of this term love in such a short book is phenomenal. Obviously, it's an important issue to Paul, this church that he loved. Paul wants them to know God's love so that they would love God and that they would love each other. Actually, turn with me to Revelations 2. It's about 30 years after Paul's letter to, to Ephesus. The Apostle John writes to the same church. Revelations 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven, lamp, or seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is what Jesus has to say to this church. Verse 2. I know your works. You toil and your patient endurance 
and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. In other words, right, that Jesus is praising this church because false teachings and false teachers have rised up among them, and they called them out and said, that is not good, solid theology. It's not what Scripture says. In other words, this church had solid theology. Look at verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This church is known in Revelations as the church that lost its first love. The lack of love in this church has always been an issue. It's always been an issue. It's amazing. First John was written probably to the church of Ephesus. This book that's all about love. Paul is addressing in the book of Ephesians love. You know what the ironic thing about this is to me? Is this church was known for its solid theology but the lack of love. So you would expect Paul to write something like this. Stop studying and start loving. But instead, Paul opens his letters with the three deepest theological chapters in all of the New Testament. Then he says, because of this theology, now love. You know, I hear Christians say all the time, we need less doctrine and more love. I love Pastor Andy's response to that. It's not that we need less doctrine. We need more doctrine and more love. And that's Paul's reaction to this. It's not that they need less doctrine. In fact, he goes, you need more doctrine because you're not loving the way you're supposed to. Here's more doctrine, more theology. Now go love. The deep doctrine in chapters 1 through 3 should motivate us and motivate the church that Paul is writing to, to deep love. Let me show you this in another way. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. It's really neat in the book of um, Ephesians. There's two places where Paul is praying for the church, and I believe this is the prayers he had for Ephesus, and again, I believe this is the prayers that he would have for us. Ephesians 1, verse 16. Again, this is the church that needs to love. Church that needs to love. This is what Paul prays for that church. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is what I pray. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and that you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, Paul is praying for this church Have knowledge. Know God's revelation. Have the spirit of wisdom that you may know. He wanted them to know. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. 
I mean, I'm showing you this because we live in a postmodern culture. Postmodernism believes that truth divides us. And so that idea is we need less doctrine to love. It's, this, it's a cultural idea that the, the less knowledge we have, the less truth we have, we can love, love better. Right? If, you, if you don't believe that, go talk to the, the, the homosexual community or transgender community and say, biologically you're a man and you're going to get destroyed. You bring truth, they're going to say you're not loving. That's anti-scripture. This is why I bring this up. Because it's infiltrated the church that we need to lay down our doctrine and theology to love each other better. It's not true. Paul is praying that they would know, that they would just understand God's grace. Because if they understood God's grace, they would love. Ephesians 3.14. It's another prayer. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is, is named that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with, with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. In other words, understand or know with all the saints what is the depth and, and length and height and, and, or breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul is praying, I want you to know about God's grace. I want you to know the depths of the love of Christ so that that knowledge would overflow into love for others. I just picture this cup. That's how my mind works, I'm sorry. Just picture this cup that's empty and God is, or Paul, inspired by God, is going to pour knowledge into this cup, knowledge of God's grace and love and peace, so that cup would overflow. And what would come out of that cup would be love, grace, and peace for others. You know, that's my prayer for our church. As we dive into deep theology, my prayer is that that depth of God's grace would be lived out in love. That we would be humbled and loving, not just proud of our knowledge. I want to end with this. Just look at verse 19 again in chapter 3. And to know, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, Paul is saying God's grace and Christ's love surpasses knowledge. We're not going to be able to understand it. It's beyond us. It's, it's too deep. It's too wide. It's, it's too high for us to understand. It actually reminds me of Psalms 139. Do you remember this psalm? We went over it a month ago. It says this, Psalms 139, verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my past and my lying down and are acquainted with, my, with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. Before I even know what I'm going to say, you know it. You hem me in behind and before and, and you lay your hand upon me. Verse 6, such 
knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Ephesians 3.19, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. David, in the same way, says, it's too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. Listen, because this knowledge is so deep and so high, we should expect it to rub us and go against our... our, It should be counterintuitive. Because it's so, so deep and so high, listen, it's controversial. Yet I truly believe the knowledge of God's grace and love is foundational to unity. It's foundational to unity and love within the church. I just want to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 again. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ or Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So I've been pastor long enough to realize that the words election and predestination are controversial. I've seen that. Listen, they're also biblical. And I say this, and I truly, I truly say this in all humi- humility. I'm not trying to win an argument or be divisive. Earlier in this sermon, I said the God, that God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world and predestined us for adoption. I purposely didn't add any thoughts or comments to this. I just read it. I just read scripture and I still haven't added any thoughts, personal thoughts or comments. Here's my challenge. When I said God the Father chose us, which is the Greek word for election, he elected us and predestined us. If you got upset, or if that made you uncomfortable, or said, you know what, that's not right, or maybe even here he goes again, just maybe, I'm just, maybe you're not upset with me, or our church, or my interpretation, theology, or doctrine. Maybe what you're truly upset with is what Paul wrote. Because election and predestination are biblical words and they're biblical concepts. This is what I'm going to ask just as your pastor. And again, I say this in all humility. Would you be open to what Ephesians 1 and 2 has to say? Open to the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's beyond us. And we're going to have to hold things in tension when we get to Ephesians 1 and 2. And it's going to be uncomfortable. And it's just like the Trinity. We have to hold that in tension. It's, it's uncomfortable. 
How is God one, yet Jesus is God, the Father is God, Spirit is God? We're going to be tackling Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 in the next couple of weeks. And I'd ask you just to pray. Pray for me, please. Sarah can testify. I don't think I've ever studied for anything harder than I have these last like month or two coming up to these chapters. You know, I picked Ephesians because I knew there was so much in Ephesians and, and I didn't even think about tackling this right off the bat, to be honest. It's not why I picked Ephesians and then I'm like, okay, we're going to have to tackle this right off the bat. So pray for me. But more importantly, pray for the church, Country Oaks. Pray for unity and love for each other. Because I truly believe, I honestly believe, as I've studied Ephesians in-depthly, that Paul wrote Ephesians 1, 4, and 6, 4 through 6, because it's foundational to biblical love and biblical unity. So pray. Ephesians, the depth of God's grace, lived out in love. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, Lord, God, I just pray, Lord, for me that I, I would speak nothing that doesn't come from your word, Lord, anytime I'm up in this pulpit, Lord. And none of my ideas or thoughts or theology, Lord, anything that comes from this pulpit, Lord, I pray comes from your word. Your words to your people, Lord. I pray for Country Oaks, Lord, as we tackle these first three chapters, Lord, that are deep, they're hard to get your mind wrapped around, Lord. I pray that we approach it in all humility, that we wrestle with these concepts, Lord, and we look at, at the glory there is, Lord. That there's a reason why you revealed these things to us. Help us to answer that question, why? Why would you, why would you tell us this, God? And I pray the answer is love. A deeper love for you, Lord, and a deeper love for each other. God, that's what I pray as we move forward in this book, Lord. God, I pray that you are glorified. God, I pray that the unity that we have here at Country Oaks, Lord, would be a testimony. The love that we have for each other, Lord, would be a testimony to, to our culture, to our town, to those that don't know you, Lord. Be with us, Lord, as we dive into this book, Lord. I pray that you bring joy and love and happiness, Lord, to your glory. In your son's name, amen.